Welcome, welcome. This is episode 66, technically, here of the BS of the Suns podcast on Bright Side of the Sun. This is Chris Habis, as always, uh, talking Phoenix Suns, and we're getting close to the season, so kind of like last year, decided to change it up a little bit and go and talk to each of the teams in the Pacific Division. We're not going to go crazy and talk to 29 teams and preview the NBA. That SB Nation can go do that. We're just going to focus on the Pacific Division, focus on uh, home, more or less, for these five teams. And the cream of the crop last year was the Los Angeles Clippers. They won 57 games, went 57 and 25, went to the Western Conference semifinals before you know bowing out to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And it was a very interesting series. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit here. Uh, but overall, yeah, they had a fantastic season, had a kind of uh, rocky offseason. Uh, there's a lot better adjectives for that, and we can open up the thesaurus for how their offseason went. But We'll talk a little bit about that, but let's let's focus on basketball. And to break down the Clippers um, from our SB Nation affiliate, we have Adi, who's from the uh, the Clippers website over there, Clippers Nation, and he's going to help us break down the Los Angeles Clippers from last year to this year, the offseason, and what we can expect. First and foremost, thanks for jumping on the podcast, and uh, I appreciate your time. How are you doing, Adi? Pretty good. How about you, Chris? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, when I was putting this all together. I know Clipper Steve had said that uh, you were the guy to go to to break down the Clippers right now, and, and you're one of the go-to guys out there for the uh, the Los Angeles Clippers website here with SB Nation. So talk a little bit about your, your background there with the Clippers and how you got associated with SB Nation and covering the team. Well, I mean, I just, I've been a pretty big basketball fan for a while now, so you know, uh, at some point I decided, you know, I just want to start writing about it. And I got into the Clippers a couple of years ago, actually. I think it was after, it was actually during the lockout time, you know, watching Blake Griffin, uh, seeing all these young guys, DeAndre Jordan, Eric Gordon. So, I mean, around that time, I started getting into the team, and eventually, you know, I started posting on Clips Nation. And it's, uh, I think it was sometime last year, it was actually during the Milwaukee Bucks game, you know, where a lot of people didn't weren't watching the game in the first place. So I volunteered to fill in to do a game recap, and then, since then, I've been like uh, doing on and off some stuff, writing on that website. This year, I'm starting to take a larger role, and um, I guess I'm maybe not one of the go-to guys per se, but I guess I was the uh, he threw it out there for us on the staff to volunteer, and then you know I was lucky enough to get uh, get the assignment. So I'll see uh, I'll see how I can do. Hopefully, <laughs> I can do them justice. Yeah, I mean, we appreciate you jumping on in general there, and uh, it. It's, it's a team that has a lot of things going on from last year's, you know, monumentous success. I mean, it was, you know, obviously the best season in the in the history of the Clippers franchise there in a lot of ways. And then obviously the offseason was what it was. And I, I don't really want to get into that off the court stuff because we've had enough of that and we get enough of that, you know, non-sports related <laughs> drama through the other affiliates. Let's let's focus on the actual team in basketball Last year, Clippers make the playoffs. You talk about that being, you know, kind of your first year with the team. So you got one hell of a ride there with uh, watching them go through and the fun series there where they were end up taking out the Golden State Warriors and then moving on to losing to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Kind of kind of put a bow on the Clippers season for us last year and where you think they fell short there against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, I guess uh, with the Thunder, part of it is, you know, the Thunder also a very good team. Like, if the, on, to be honest, like, you can make a pretty uh, solid argument, I would say, that the top three teams from the West last year, so and even though it was like a 4-2 series, um, most games are fairly close, um, I guess it was only really the first two games that were blowouts, Clippers knocked them out in game one, Oklahoma City took game two, but they played each other pretty even the rest of the series, so and then I think in the end part of it was that the Clippers just lost to a better team but I think they did do themselves justice 
me personally a one sequence in game five, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, and you know what? It's that's that's kind of something you don't hear very often. Someone going, "Hey, you know what? We just we lost to a better team." Um, so I appreciate you actually saying that out loud because a lot of times people come up with every excuse under the sun and all that uh, all that jazz to kind of justify their team and, and losing. But yeah, I mean, let's let's put it this way: the Clippers spent a few years in the past there, not in the playoffs and not thinking about the playoffs, not sniffing the playoffs, and. I mean, saying that they were in the shadow of the Lakers is probably an injustice to what the Lakers were doing and how bad the Clippers were. And now they're becoming a franchise that you can kind of turn to and look at. And with the Western Conference, there's three teams. We San Antonio, the one that we haven't mentioned, Oklahoma City, and the Clippers. Three teams that will probably be fighting for 60-plus wins. Three teams you can realistically see being a championship contender and a team that will cut down the nets. And those might be the best three teams in the NBA when you look at the overall record. That's another story with how deep and tremendous the West is. Uh, when you look at this season now, so taking the momentum from last year of 55 wins, the over-under is 55 and a half. And, you know, over-unders are what they are, but 55 and a half, what did you think when you see that come out as the over-under for the Clippers, and how are you betting that if you were? Um, you know, I, I thought it was a little, bit un, uh, a little bit of an underestimate of the team, especially when the top teams, you know, Cleveland, first-year team, they're putting up at 59, and then they're tied with the Chicago Bulls, you know, have all their own issues, you know, coming together. Uh, Derek Rose playing for the first time in pretty much two years, hopefully, and uh, all those additions. But, yeah, I thought definitely it was somewhat of an underestimate because they won 57 last year. They had a very good season. But at the same time, you know, they did have things holding them back, being the first year. They had some issues with depth, you know, and now they have an added year of continuity. So even, la- and even last year, when you consider what they had to do with injuries and stuff, they did come pretty close to being 61 teams. So I would definitely... I mean, it's a little bit of a homer opinion, I'm sure, but I would definitely put them at 60 wins this year, hopefully more, depending on how, obviously how injuries and other things like that play out. They're definitely that talented, though, I would say. Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit before coming on and actually recording this with the over-unders for both the Suns and the Clippers, respectively, how you thought that they were you know, both a little bit low-balling in terms of like the Clippers. It's you know two wins or so off of what they were last year with 57 the Suns win 48 games. Their over/under is 42 and a half. You can justify it. You can have that argument of why the Suns is going to go down with their losses and just all the things that went right for them last year that very easily could go wrong for them this year. But that's that's a different conversation as well. When you look at the 55 and a half, so a lot of that probably has to do with obviously the forecast of the Western Conference, but also the additions and the losses. Some of the losses, you know, looking at the guys that played at least 500 minutes or so for the Clippers, 500 or more minutes that they lost. They they lose Jared Dudley, who you can argue they didn't really lose much because unfortunately for how great he was out here in Phoenix, he really didn't find his groove out there in, in LA. Like a lot of people thought, I mean, I thought, you know, Steve thought last year when we did the preview podcast, we all thought it was kind of a perfect fit and he would just blend in beautifully and just didn't work. And then they lose Darren Collison and Willie Green while bringing in uh, a few players. Let's talk about the losses first. Of those three, not really taking into consideration the additions that they bring in, who are you missing the most from a Clippers depth perception with all three of those guys being kind of key cogs on the bench last year? Um, I'd say like Willie Green was, uh, I don't think he was any uh, significant loss because most of the time he was the fifth guard and most of his minutes end up coming because of injury. But yeah, definitely uh, Collison was the biggest loss, I would say, as a backup point guard. Um, he did get a nice contract that was probably panned from the uh, from a lot of people writing from the Kings' perspective 
because um, he might have gotten a little bit overpaid, but I think he definitely uh, got himself a nice contract. It was good to see him get the money he deserved, but um, he did play uh, a big part in Clippers' success last season, especially down the stretch. You know, he had a couple, one or two big games in the playoffs, but I don't think he's necessarily like a huge loss in that he's replaceable. And then obviously, you know, there's Dudley. Uh, I guess we were all very excited to see what Dudley would do because I remember he was a very good player back when he was in Phoenix as well, I guess. Uh, there have been reports, you know, he was dealing with a lot of knee tendonitis last year and then he'd have to play through those injuries because of death and other players being injured at times. But, um, yeah, definitely Collison would be the primary loss, in my opinion. And so when you lose someone, you then have to replace them. So when you look at just those, the trio there, the replacements are basically Jordan Farmar, rookie C.J. Wilcox, and, um, you know, kind of veteran uh, guy and, and Chris Douglas Roberts, who's kind of bounced around the league there. He's kind of a nomad in the NBA. Those three more or less replace what Jared Dudley, Darren Collison, and Willie Green were on the roster. And then they, the biggest additions in the offseason have to be adding to the depth of the front court, which was one of the biggest uh, knocks on the Clippers last year was just the intangibles of the front court overall. The starters were great, but then you get to the bench and, and you're really at a loss for, for what you have there on the bench. They bring in Spencer Hawes, Ekbe Udo. So they, they got some depth there. They got some different things that, that Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan don't do necessarily, which is a nice thing to have on your bench. Looking at these additions here, what is your overall impression on you lose those three and you bring in these five with the new Clippers roster here? Um, I would say... Uh I think they definitely improved the depth on that bench, you know, compared to last year. Although last year they did have a lot of nice pickups around the t- trade deadline. I think that was even Doc's plan going into the season. He'd said that he looked at the players who were going to be free agents or who had those kind of contracts, knew it was going to be a big buy- buyout year. So last year I think they picked up, who was it, Hito Turkoglu, um, Glenn Davis, Dan Granger, all they picked them up in buyout season. Although I guess Danny Granger had a lot of issues similar to Dudley, you know. He wasn't, uh, he's been injured, maybe past his prime. But uh, I guess uh, I would say, like, even now, their opening day roster this season in terms of depth is definitely better than a year ago, but also is definitely better than even going to last year's playoffs with all the vets that they added in. So the funny thing is, like, the backup bigs last year definitely are a huge improvement. Like, the start of last season, I think Byron Mullins got minutes. Uh, Clippers fans, we tried to talk ourselves into Mullins for a little while, actually, but, you know, we were soon uh, we soon realized that, you know, <laughs> that wasn't happening. And then Ryan Hollins, Antoine Jameson. So now with Spencer Hawes and either Udo or Glenn Davis getting most of the back minutes at the back of four, I think that's definitely a huge improvement. And then the rest of the bench probably isn't too affected. You know, you have Crawford and Farmar. I think... Farmer and Collison, I think we discussed a little bit earlier, I think they're mostly lateral moves. They do some things a little differently, but they're, they're neither a huge loss or a huge upgrade from one another. And then small forward um, could be Barnes, uh, Barnes most likely starting, but you know there's a possibility that he will return to the bench at some point if one of these new additions, like either Chris Douglas Roberts or even Joe Ingles, the Australian they picked up after the World Cup, there's possibility that they might be able to play themselves into more significant minutes. And that's that's actually one of the things that I was going to mention there in just a moment was with this roster, you have 14 guaranteed contracts, and I kind of scroll through and look at the returnees and then the guys that they bring back, and then you invite to camp Jared Cunningham of Oregon State fame for folks, uh, Oakland Soldier in high school and 
Oregon State is a basketball product there and then was a first-round pick in the NBA draft actually not too long ago. And then Joe Ingles, as you mentioned, you have those two guys that get invited to camp. So they're they're kind of piecing together. And probably when you look at the roster in terms of depth, the biggest standout is probably playmaking and offensive creation on the wing. Because you you have Chris Paul, J.J. Redick to a lesser extent, and then obviously Jordan Crawford, who's a six-man-of-the-year candidate-slash-winner every time he comes off the bench with what he can do. Those three right there are going to create offense from the guard position, and uh, with Redick and Crawford probably creating a lot more for themselves uh, with Paul creating for the team. There's not a lot of creation on the wing. Matt Barnes is going to do what Matt Barnes does. Chris Douglas Roberts is a nice athlete. He Turkaloo's much past his prime. And then, you know, the rookie C.J. Wilcox, second year Reggie Bullock. A lot of those guys are niche players in terms of catch and shoot or spreading the floor, doing different things defensively. Not a lot of offensive creation there on the wing. Is that a void that you feel needs to be addressed or, or maybe I'm kind of overplaying that? Um, I would say uh, at least the wing maybe is an issue, but uh, personally, in my opinion, it's more of an issue on the defensive end, you know, where Matt Barnes, uh, like Jamal Crawford, they're both 34, and although Matt Barnes is a pretty decent wing defender, but uh, it's hard for him to play major minutes in the playoffs, especially when he's the primary guy that you're trying to throw on players like Kevin Durant, or in the West you have other guys like Kawhi Leonard, Batum, and players like players of that ilk. But um, hopefully Chris Douglas Roberts something could step in on defense then, but well, on the offensive end, I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't consider it as big an issue because um, you you do have Chris Paul, who's one of the best creators in the league, best passers. Uh, Redick, he's a great uh, catch and shoot off ball guy, and I would say he's able to create some offense for himself just by virtue of um, drawing attention from other players. He is able to make plays off the dribble occasionally. Um, Crawford, Crawford is what Crawford is. Uh, he's a good passer when he chooses to be, although he's definitely got, uh, you know, Clippers fans do have their issues with the shot selection, especially when those shots aren't falling. But unlike other teams, I don't think um, wing creation is as much of an issue, especially when you have one of the best playmaking big league at, uh, with Blake Griffin uh, at the four. So I think the main main contribution we want to see from the uh, our small forward, whoever ends up playing that three position, You'd want them to be able to knock their shots down, maybe occasionally drive, get some dunks, like Matt Barnes has able to, been able to do for the past two years. And hopefully one of these other guys will be able to get major rotation minutes either as a starter or as a backup, whether it's uh, Chris Douglas Roberts, Ingles, or even Reggie Bullock. Um, although I don't think Wilcox is going to get that as many minutes because he is a little bit more of a shooting guard. He's a rookie, and then he's buried pretty much in the depth chart. Yeah, the one thing with Wilcox that I'll throw out there as a draft aficionado kind of a guy is that I mean, long is all heck. You know, six foot five, almost six foot six. You know, seven plus foot wingspan and just a knockdown shooter. So I mean, he's a guy that, in in theory, it makes sense that you draft him. He kind of replicates a lot of what you got with Reggie Bullock when you drafted another six foot seven knockdown shooter who's really long. But Reggie, I I think the good thing with Reggie Bullock, a guy who I'm really high on in general, is just a young player that does what he does very well is that he comes in, he plays both ends of the floor, and in small minutes, he actually was pretty impressive, whether it was blowout wins or you know in needs of injuries, whatever he was doing, lampooning players. When he got on the court, he actually didn't have that rookie vibe. It didn't look like he didn't belong out there. Everything that he brought to the table, it kind of made sense. So if he takes that natural progression next step, like you were saying, maybe being able to kind of 
take some pressure off of Matt Barnes, not necessarily as the starter, but taking some pressure off Barnes as a wing defender and give him some minutes with his youth and his energy, that could be good. That's a player that I'm looking to see if he can take that next step and develop. Who's someone on the roster when you look at it as it is, either returning player or a new addition, who are you looking at as not necessarily an X factor, but someone that needs to take their game to the next level for this team to go from 57 wins and a contender to a team that you know can get to the Western Conference Finals and really compete? Um, I would say, I guess, the player that immediately leaps to mind for me is definitely DeAndre Jordan. I mean, I guess you could argue that he did make somewhat of that leap last year, just in part just from getting uh, longer, more minutes and not getting pulled by Vinny Conference Killer Del Negro whenever he made any sort of mistake. I think that was very crucial for his development. Uh, I think DeAndre still has a ways to He was very impressive against Golden State in the playoffs last year, but Obviously, part of that is due to the fact that they didn't have Bogut. For a lot of times, they weren't starting a true center. Uh, his main matchup was David Lee, which is uh, pretty easy to look pretty easy to look good against, especially on the offensive end of the floor. Um, but he disappeared a little bit more against Oklahoma City, who had two really big guys to throw at him, Perkins and Ibaka, who played a little bit more against Griffin, I think. But um, I think it is important for DeAndre to improve, especially on the defensive end. Although he is a highlight player, makes a ton of blocks, um, he's a very good defender, improved a lot over the course of last year. He still has some issues, you know, especially in terms of rim protection. Uh, you know, Doc's focused on that in during media day, during the couple first days of training camp, that they did a great job of guarding the three last year, the best team in the league guarding the perimeter. But that part of that came at the expense of giving up more points in the paint which is something that DeAndre is definitely capable of doing. But um, I think it's something where he does need to take another step forward. And I do think he will, just because, just by virtue of uh, having another year underdog, having another year around great, hardworking players like Griffin, Chris Paul. So uh, he's definitely the guy that comes to mind who has the potential to make a leap. Like uh, most of the Clippers roster is a little bit on the older side, so they... Uh, they are what they are at this point of their career. DeAndre is definitely the guy I think is the one who's going to make uh, has to make that huge jump. I'm going to still write it out with Reggie Bullock just because that was my guy a few years ago in the draft. Uh, but that's just me writing out for a guy that I, I was just really a big fan of in, in college and hoping that he makes something good happen there in the NBA. Now you talk about DeAndre Jordan, so that brings up an interesting point because you then you start talking about the back or sorry the front court I should say and the backups and the reserves there. So. You bring in Glenn Davis, who's vertically challenged and not a defensive stopper. You have Spencer Hawes, who, for Suns fans, he's similar enough to a Channing Fry, much more explosive athletically and, and does some different things, but that stretch four slash five and uh, is not going to really do very much for you defensively or on the glass, uh, at least consistently. And then Udo, who was a draft bust by all, all accounts, decent defender, decent rebounder, good team-oriented player. You don't really have that guy where if DeAndre Jordan is not really doing it, and granted it's not Vinny Del Negro pulling him for just one minor mistake, but if he's not feeling it, he's not helping the team, there's not really necessarily a big that you can bring in. You can't necessarily slide Blake Griffin to the five. What happens if Blake Griff, or sorry, DeAndre Jordan is not able to be the five-man that this team needs him to be to be a championship contender when you start looking at the bench? I don't think they addressed that. Not saying you have to replace him because he's a young guy and he's very, very talented in his own right. I don't think they address the, well, what if DeAndre's not feeling it one night and we need to have someone come in like a specialist that can at least kind of mimic some of the things that we want him to be able to do? Um, I don't I don't see that as much of an issue as you might, because obviously, you know, 
every team, even uh, uh, the Cavaliers, the Bulls, they all have their as well. I mean, I think the Spurs maybe are a little bit more of an exception, but Spurs are like an anomaly in every sense, to be honest. So they have a room protector behind DeAndre Jordan. I know Spencer, uh, he averages about maybe, I think, one and a half blocks or something per 36, so I don't know how he is as a general rim protector. You know, he might be in a similar space where DeAndre was last year, where he might get blocks, but not necessarily always as good at uh, keeping a low field goal percentage in general. So I don't see as much of an issue because uh, uh, every team is going to have maybe some flaws with the depth. Like you could look at it and say, Paul goes down, who are they going to do? Who's their backup point guard? Is Jordan Farmer really going to? down the fort for long stretches of time. Um, so, I think, I guess, okay, Udo, but, you know, he is a minimum contract guy that they signed at the end of the offseason, so there's only so much you can expect from him. No, that's, that's fair, and so I, I'm curious with you as a guy that watches much more Clipper games than I do, the genesis of Blake Griffin, he's a polarizing player by all accounts you know funny commercials but people dislike him because of the flopping and the complaining but then he's an explosive athlete so he's got those fans that like him i think in between all of that the fact that he's an explosive athlete he's funny and the flopping a lot of what gets kind of lost in the shuffle there is the fact that when you watched him last year much more improved offensively overall skill wise in terms of passing facing up shooting the ball he does a lot more things than just you know jump and dunk which a lot of people kind of just play it out that that's what all Blake Griffin does looking at the genesis of Blake Griffin where did you see the most improvement from him last year and what are some holes you're hoping that he's starting to fill in this year um, I guess the biggest thing that uh, Clippers fans noticed last year is definitely probably his improved jumper you know he wasn't as to shoot shooting at a much higher percentage I think he became around a league average shooter so um, he's definitely uh improved what they've had in his game, although I think there was a point before last year he was definitely underrated with, like, you know, the all you can do is dunk crowd, which you watch him last year, thinks he could do, like, running the fast break, passing the ball, which is something he does excellently. I don't. I think there are very few big men in the league who can do it as well as he can. Um, so things like that are, those are qualities he, he's had in his game even before. So I guess part of it uh, for him was just being more confident, taking a larger role, and then having the opportunity to show off those skills, especially when Paul went down and he did a lot more of the ball handling on his own. I guess for this year, something that uh, you probably need, uh, might want to improve on, perhaps at times, uh, obviously, you know, he had issues with technical sometimes last year, although uh, he's like the kind of guy who does get into a lot of Scrums, I think, uh, who was it? P.J. Tucker last year yeah. got ejected, right? Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, that was in the, the game in March. But I don't know if there's anything like There's no glaring issues with the game. I guess they're, they can round out. He can do improve what skills he has, like maybe posting up, passing. Obviously, you can always improve. I know he said that over the summer he worked a little bit on a corner three, which would be very interesting if he could add that to his game, you know, similar to how someone like Serge Baca has done. It'd be nice, definitely, to see him improve his uh, jumper even further to the point where, you know, he becomes close to the Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan kind of player out there where it's something that 
you don't just give them you want to you know run them off the line or something yeah that that amari stoudemire jumper basically where you know he's going to dunk on you and you know he can put the ball on the floor and you know he can do all those athletic things but if you leave him open he's going to knock down that jumper and when amari started knocking that jumper down for phoenix fans to tie it back home he basically became an all-world unstoppable offensive power forward and you know limitations on the defensive side we'll we'll leave those alone but offensively if Blake Griffin's doing that then he's an unguardable offensive player there's a there's a theory that not just I have I'm sure that I'm not the the only guy that's ever thought this but there's a handful of superstar players in the NBA today and and over the years as well that I personally feel that if there was another alpha on the team if there was another player that can be equally talented and just say, hey, I'm the best player on the team, that those players would be able to win a championship if they had that. Not to knock Chris Paul. I think he's one of the best point guards that's ever played the game, but he kind of falls on that list for me. Do the Clippers need Blake Griffin to be the best player on the roster this year for them to be able to win a championship or contend for one? Um, that's a tough question, though. Obviously, uh, I guess uh, it's important for him definitely to improve even further. Like, in the playoffs last year, there were times, especially in the Oklahoma City series, where uh, he did defer a little bit to the other players on his team. So I think, uh, you know, being Chris Paul, it's difficult. There's a reason why point guards usually never the best players on a championship contender. It's very tough, you know, uh, especially if you have to play on defense and offense two ways like Chris Paul does, running the screens on one end, setting the offense on the other end. It's a tiring, can be a tiring job at times. So. I think some, uh, it's hard to say like who's who's uh, the better one, better player one versus the other. But I think it is uh, fair to say that Griffin needs to um, take a bit, take on a bigger role in like the later playoff rounds, even when he's facing against elite defenders like Serge Ibaka. Yeah, and that, and that's kind of where where I'm coming from when I ask that kind of a question because with how much of the load is thrown on Chris Paul. It would be, and, and it's not like Blake Griffin hasn't done this to an extent already. They won 57 games last year. They were a couple wins away from the Western Finals and potentially, you know, heading off against the Spurs to maybe meet the Heat in the NBA Finals. So they, they were a contender last year to win the championship. And most people would agree with that, even though they may not have been number one on everybody's list. They were on that list. With Blake Griffin, it's, you know, again, that genesis of Griffin of taking that next step. I feel the same way about Carmelo Anthony about guys like Derrick Rose, that if you have someone on your team of equal talent and potentially you can say even is better than them, then they might be able to really take advantage of their skills and be able to be that Robin a la Dwayne Wade and Kobe Bryant, all kinds of players we've seen over the years, that they can just really maximize what they do and they'd be able to win a championship in that regard. So I'm, I'm curious to see if Blake Griffin takes that jump, if Chris Paul kind of gives over the reins, if the way Doc is kind of formulating this thing in training camp with the leadership model, I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out um, and, and we'll, obviously we'll see that when the season starts uh, going against let's bring it back to Phoenix here last year the Clippers did what they were supposed to do they were three and one against the Phoenix Suns they knocked them off the last three times in the season there as we were you know gearing up towards the playoffs beating them you know by basically single digits in every single game so they were all fairly close affairs or at least close at the end the Suns did give them one heck of a licking in LA it was their biggest home loss of the year a 19 point loss how do you see with the, obviously the Suns are a different team than last year. No Channing Fry, insert Isaiah Thomas, much more perimeter oriented. How do you see that matchup now? Once you see the offseason is now complete, we have the players, they're on the teams. How do you see that matchup this year from a Clipper perspective with this Phoenix Suns roster? Um, 
I just, yeah, first of all, definitely that loss, that was a very tough loss to watch. I think that was the point where the Clippers turned around from like around that point after that game maybe, which was also around the time that Chris Paul got hurt and Blake Griffin really came into his own as like an MVP candidate. Now, uh, that was around the time of the Phoenix loss. I think that was big for that team. You know, uh, it was around that time where it took them from being just a good team to one of the great teams in the league last year. Um, I would say that the Suns, uh, either way, I think the Clippers are certainly a better team and they'll go further in the playoffs and all. But the Suns did uh, play them very close, even in the other three games. I think uh, they're all within 10 points, I want to say. And yeah. They're probably within five in during most of the fourth quarters. Um, I guess the Suns, I don't know how the Suns are going to... Would the loss of Channing Fry really change them that much? They're still going to be the same kind of run a lot. They have Anthony Tolliver now, who replicates some of that three-point shooting. So I guess there's still going to be some of that same run-and-gun element to that squad, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to have the same run and gun. And when I start looking at the rosters, I'm starting to realize that Phoenix is probably going to hang their hat on, at least a little bit this year, running a lot of four-guard almost lineups and then some random big out there and, and really try to mess with teams. You start looking at the Clippers roster and you go, okay, put Blake Griffin at the five, and then you can throw out your best four guards, and the Clippers are equal to, if not better on some nights, probably than Phoenix will be in terms of being able to throw out you know four littles and one big. And, and that's... I'm starting to look at the way these teams are put together, and we could see some games where in the fourth quarter we're watching Chris Paul and Reddick and Crawford and Barnes and Griffin going at Dragic and Bledsoe and Thomas and Tucker and you know Miles Plumley or something like that, with them really going out there and going at it with all these guards and littles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in situations like that, there's some that are a lot. It does come down to their shooting. You know, if you have a cold game, it can kill you, and then if you have a hot game, you know, like they did against the Pacers last year, they embarrass the Pacers in both meetings yeah. from what I remember um, I don't know I think the Clippers I don't know if they're going to go as much with those three guard lineups Cause I know like uh, last year whether they had Paul Collison Crawford or maybe it was Paul Reddick Crawford those lines, lineups they're very good offensively but they did have their issues defensively as well because uh, I guess part of that is Jamal Crawford who isn't necessarily the greatest defender in the world at the two position, and then we throw him up against those bigger players as well, you know. Uh, there's a little bit of mismatch on the defensive end where he does does become a little bit of a liability at times. Actually, on that note, it's pretty interesting. There have uh, been some rumors recently, and then Doc also confirmed them today at training camp where he did say that the Clippers are considering, you know, with all the small ball and running around the league recently, throwing out a big ball and up playing Spencer Hawes, DeAndre Jordan, and Blake Griffin together for a limited stretch of time. I think that would be a very interesting look. Maybe maybe not necessarily something they play against the Suns, but against maybe other teams who do play a little bit bigger as well, where Blake Griffin might be athletic enough to guard some of the threes in the league, and then you have Hawes to provide outside shooting, DeAndre Jordan protecting the rim. So that would be very interesting to see, you know, with all the small ball phenomena that we're gravitating towards. Yeah, that'd be like a late 90s, more athletic version of the San Antonio Spurs with Purdue and Robinson and Duncan with what they would be able to throw out there. Yeah, I mean, Griffin at the three every now and then would be interesting, and to see them combat the Suns' small ball lineup with that big lineup, even though it's more of a 2K15 fantasy, not an NBA coach athletic strategy, um, that, that would be interesting to kind of see how they would go about that. And, yeah, that's the fun thing about the Clippers is whether they go small, whether they go big, their traditional starting five, 
they, they kind of have all the pieces, you know, to be more of a fluid championship contender maybe than last year. I, th- I think last year, you know, 57 wins and where they were at, they, they probably considered themselves a contender as well. But they shored up some of those holes. And the biggest matchup when I'm looking at Clippers Suns is going to come down to we don't have Channing Fry anymore, who oddly enough guarded Blake Griffin very well. Um, I, I'm not necessarily saying specifically last year, every minute they were on the floor with each other, but the past couple of years, you know, Channing Fry actually did a pretty admirable job against Blake Griffin, considering the athletic disparity there. Markeith Morris and Blake Griffin, though, that ends up being to me the matchup that determines how this four-game season series goes and what the success of the Suns is going to be, because. You know, the, the backcourt is fairly even. The center position is fairly even. The small forwards are both, you know, team-oriented defensive players. And then you end up having the all-NBA Blake Griffin against the young Markeith Morris, who's talented in his own right, but we got to see what he does as a starter and having to match up against guys like Blake Griffin every night. That matchup right there, to me, kind of determines what this season series is going to be like. Hmm. That's an interesting take. I mean, that's my opinion might be, I think that matchup usually goes a little bit more Blake Griffin's way. I know, I know you said that Channing Fry's defend him well. I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head how Marquise did last year, but I do know like sometimes uh, some of these tweener players can gri- give Griffin tough trouble. Like Draymond Green last year in the playoffs did a pretty good job on Griffin yeah. in the second half of the series, even though like the Clippers ultimately prevailed. Blake Griffin did a had a very good series overall. Um, I guess personally, I think. Uh, Starting lineups are a little fairly even, I guess. Might go a little bit more to the Clippers, and obviously it depends, especially with the team like the Suns. It does depend on shooting, and maybe uh, depending on the schedule, or, or definitely on the Clippers side, you know whether or not they're on the second night of back to back, the Suns might be able to run them out of the building or something. But the benches are probably where the game is won and lost, in my opinion. You know, if guys like Thomas and Oliver, uh, Marcus Morris come in, they can shoot shoot the footballs out and outplay them. I think that can that can swing games definitely in the series this year. Yeah, and then Gerald Green. Like you mentioned the shooting, and it's almost like every single oh, player on the Green, Phoenix Suns. Definitely. Yeah, well, and it, that's the funny thing about the depth of the backcourt of the Phoenix Suns this year is you're going to probably have conversations about the Suns and forget one of those guys at least in the midst of talking about them because they have, you know, the, let's not call them the, the point guards, their actual backcourt of Goran and Eric Bledsoe. That's their, you know, they're going to distribute the minutes as point guard and shooting guard. And then Isaiah Thomas coming off the bench as the backup point guard. Gerald Green, Archie Goodwin, um, Marcus Morris, P.J. Tucker, kind of like shuffling those guys in. Rookie T.J. Warren will probably earn some minutes. So a lot of guys kind of hodgepodge between that two and three position that are some guys are going to get left out for sure. It's really an issue at all. Like, actually, I think uh, Seth Hartman, I heard a pretty good take from him. He was on a podcast with someone else. He's talking about, you know, one of the issues the Suns this year is that there might be problems just because there are a ton of guys who feel like they're probably rotation players in this league and they're not going to be able to get the time they deserve because the Suns have so many players in that sort of similar position. And last year, things might have worked out better for them because they might have not had as much of an issue with that. The first year with the coach, you know, they played very, very uh, t- uh, great team basketball, but... I thought it was interesting. Like he talked about Pat Riley and disease of more, where that might affect the Suns this year. Where you, there's, especially uh, some of these guys who are getting closer rookie contracts, who might be getting a little bit closer to extension, wanting more time. Do you think that'll uh, be an issue at all in the Suns' life this year? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it can be. That makes me remember, or reminds me, I should say, of two years ago when the Suns drafted Kendall Marshall and they just signed Goran Dragic and then they um, had Sebastian Telfer as a carryover from the season before and Kendall was drafted with the impression of being the, you know, heir apparent to Steve Nash. Goran was signed as being the cornerstone of the franchise going forward from from Steve Nash. They were both given kind of the same message. And uh, and then Sebastian Telfair was sitting there on the bench going, I'm fighting to be a starter. I respect the heck out of Goran, and I think Kendall's going to be a good NBA player, but I think I'm better than both of them, and they should think they're better than me, and I'm going to fight to be a starter. Isaiah Thomas is actually doing a little bit of that right now, not in a negative way, but saying, you know, I'm, I'm going into training camp trying to prove to the coach that I'm capable of starting and leading this team. And every player should think that to an extent. And then when the coach says, this is your role, then you respect it and you accept it. Um, so it reminds me a little bit of that back then. And that ended up being a negative situation for the Suns. Kendall was gone almost immediately. They had to trade Sebastian Telfair. And then now Goran's the only carryover. I, I think that the only issue with this group is going to be Gerald Green, who, as a veteran who just came off his career year and proved that he can be that streaky shooter that'll knock down six threes and, and help you beat an Indiana Pacer team or go out there and go 0 for 5 and maybe not be as impressive because, you know, the, the shots don't go down, they don't go down. He's the guy that I can see having some of a gripe. He complained a little bit last year in the locker room after games where he didn't get a lot of minutes. So I can see him as a veteran, you know, wanting to win, wanting to play, and especially coming off a career year where he helped this team win 48 games and was tremendous as a starter and as a reserve, no matter what role they threw him in. If he ends up getting a few DNPs at the beginning of the season in favor of other guys, I can see that being the one guy in the locker room where there's some disparaging comments and the potential of like a move or some negativity in the locker room. If we're looking forward, still talking about the Suns, you know, there's definitely a possibility, you know, with all the young assets they have and the fact that they're not necessarily uh, a title contender at the moment who wants that, preserve that continuity. I think there's probably a pretty good chance they make a trade or two, like going forward this season or even around the trade deadline. Uh, do you think that's a possibility at all heading forward? Are, are there any players that might uh, be looking to be traded somewhere like superstars that the Suns might be interested in? Like last year, I was thinking, you know, Kevin Love would be a great fit on the Phoenix Suns, you know, especially with the outlet passing, three-point shooting. And I also thought, I guess, Larry Sanders, but I think he's pretty entrenched in Milwaukee right now. Yeah, I think with this group here, I mean, the only thing you need to know about the Phoenix Suns front office is that Ryan McDonough was born under the tutelage of Danny Ainge. So you know, he's, he's gonna he has that maverick tenacity to him. He made those trades with Cloak and Daggers last summer to... You know, while at the moment we didn't think that he stole Miles Plumley and Gerald Green and Eric Bledsoe, but he went and stole those three players in the two different trades. So, you know, whether it's, you know, making a... T- I, I think this roster is a tweak away from being a 50-win team that can go in there with, like, Memphis and Dallas and Houston and Portland and compete for that 6-8 to eight seed spot. I think as of right now, they're, you know, unfortunately with the way they're put together, I think they're more of a 9-10 to, to 10 seed in the West, and that means 45-48 to 48 wins and just missing out. But if the trade presents itself, whether it's a superstar or just kind of a minor tweak to the front court to add some depth or some quality there, I think that they're they're one move away from being a playoff team. I don't think they are one as constituted. So I think that that could happen. I mean, they just got done signing, you know, Zorin. They got to sign Gorin. They signed Eric Bledsoe. They signed the Morris Twins. Obviously, Isaiah Thomas has got his deal. So they've, they've secured a lot of these guys. The only young guys that they haven't secured are the rookies from last season, this season, and Miles Plumley. Those are the only extensions they have to worry about, but they do have a lot of young talent. They can go out there and make a move. I'm just curious who that move is right now because you don't need Rajon Rondo and Kevin Love's already traded. And a lot of these guys that are disgruntled superstars, 
either signed crazy contracts or have already made their moves or don't really fit a need for the Suns, which kind of puts them in a bind where maybe a small tweak is really what they should be looking for. Yeah, I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head who might become available this, during the season. Like I know Greg Monroe obviously got a lot of traction over the summer as a name, you know, with a lot of teams in the league. I don't know. I'm sure that's someone that Suns fans talk about a lot. Yeah, a but lot. <laughs> I think, yeah. I'm sure, like, there might be players maybe even the Rudy Gay mold who uh, become available a couple of months into the season, depending on how things go. So, I guess that's something to watch looking forward. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm going to say this right now, and I've said it too many times on this podcast. I'm just waiting for next summer when they go out there and make a big um, money move and bring in Paul Millsap, who will fit on this roster tremendously and, and be that missing piece that puts them into the playoffs and you know takes them from being the having the number 13 overall pick or 14 pick, which they seem to live on uh, recently, or you know actually getting into the playoffs and competing. I, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I, I think Paul Millsap would fit tremendously on this roster, but obviously things have to go right for him to, to land here. He's probably the biggest free agent next summer in terms of like an actual unrestricted free agent that you can go and get. Well, that's good. So, like, looking at this, I'm not going to make us predict, oh, the Suns are going to win three games against the Clippers, and or you say, oh, they're going to sweep them and all that stuff. That's that's not really what this is about, but it kind of sounds like we're both on the same page. They match up very well against each other, and the Clippers are probably, not probably, they are a few steps along in the development process as a team overall with chemistry and winning and the way they mesh together. They're a few steps along the way ahead of the Phoenix Suns as is, despite the fact that they do match up pretty well against each other and they'll probably play some really fun games this season. They played a lot of fun games last year. Oh yeah, I'm definitely excited to watch the Suns Clippers again this year. I mean, even your Suns game is in general they're one of the young, exciting teams to watch. Um I think, you know, last year was three one series, there's one blow it went to the Suns and then the Clippers took three games uh that was pretty close. So um, I would be surprised to sweep, see a sweep in either direction, but I mean, I would just, uh, I think the most likely outcome, I would just hedge my bets and say they'll split the season series. As part of that, also depends on when they play each other, you know, how the schedule works out, heading yeah. into those games and all that too. But I think they're fairly evenly matched in terms of like, uh, playing each other in the regular season. I wouldn't be su- too surprised if the Suns even took maybe three games, and uh, I would would not be surprised at all if the Clippers took three or even four. But, yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what you said before with the playoff series against the Thunder. It was a six-game series. It was a 4-2 win with the series. But at the end of the day, the games were fairly competitive. It was a good series, and you know teams have to win games. It can't always be you win, I win, you win, I win, you win, I win. You know, ended up bouncing their way where it was four two. And on paper, that looks bad. But then you go and look at the box scores, and you watch the actual games, and they were all competitive. I think they can have four competitive games, and it could be a three one you know series for the Clippers or the Suns or like you said, a sweep is probably unlikely, and we can play it safe and say two to two. Um, but yeah, it, it'll probably be you know another three one series in whichever team's favor with you know a handful of competitive games along the way. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I guess Thunder Series is still a little bit of a sore, sore point with us Clippers fans because obviously with all the antics heading into Game Five, and then I guess even just thinking about Sterling in general, I think uh, we all seem to feel that that did have some tangible on how the Clippers played. As a Clipper fan, I would be remiss not to ask this: How? Uh acrimonious is it that the Clippers are now the big boys in town in LA and the Lakers are in the dredges of the NBA? Well, I don't live in Los Angeles, so I can't speak for all the 
fans out there on the West Coast. But you, yeah, you can't, you can't speak for Billy Crystal. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I can't speak for either of those guys. But I think yeah, it's definitely fun just as an NBA fan to see the Lakers go down and get a little bit of their just desserts after a lot of a long period of you know arrogance and winning and all that looks and glamour. So that's how we're going to end every podcast in this series, uh, even the one where we talk to the Lakers, is that the Lakers have some egg on their face, and everybody's a little bit excited about that. They'll get back up, they'll get on their feet, but they got some egg on their face. And uh, I definitely appreciate you jumping on and joining the podcast here, uh, Adi. And how can people read your stuff? Obviously, ClipsNation.com, the SB Nation affiliate of the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, but how can people find you on Twitter and, and be able to interact with you? Um, I guess you can, uh, I'm on Clips Nation, obviously, under Adithya, my full name, A-D-I-T-H-Y-A, and I'm on Twitter under, uh, Brown is the Night, that's my handle, but yeah, I mean, definitely, I love, I love watching the Suns, I've been looking forward to watching them this season as well, um, I think I'm a little bit higher on them than you are, you seem to be, uh, fairly, uh, fairly confident that they're probably just a little bit out of the playoffs, I think that, I think, uh, a little bit closer than that, you know, maybe after the playoffs, but, you know, just one thing anywhere else with these other teams, injuries or anything could throw them into that mix. As all, yeah, the, the injury factor, of course, plays into that. And as everyone on Brightside knows, I'm the guy that didn't grow up the Suns fan out here in Phoenix, and I'm the guy that straddles the line and talks about things from a logical standpoint, not from a fan standpoint. So I get bashed I get bashed a lot by the readers, which I appreciate and I love, all, of course. But, um, yeah, I'm that guy that I just kind of look at things, and I'm, I, I put no emotion into the way I look at it, and I see the Suns, and I'm like, yeah, I think this is a really good team, and we'll see what happens. Like, I'm rooting for them. Like, I like everyone within the organization. I, I respect everyone there, and I think they're doing a great job moving in the right direction. And they're, you know, kind of like the Clippers in the early 2000s. They're putting the pieces together and they're getting close. And we'll, we'll see what happens if once they get that defining piece, like you guys did a few years ago with Chris Paul, with getting Blake Griffin and kind of putting together those finishing touches and, and really becoming a contender out West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to see them going forward for sure. Yeah, same here. Well, good luck with your team during the season. Uh, you won't hear that very often from Suns people over here, so take it and, and enjoy it and you know bookmark this date. But yeah, good luck with your season out there. Thanks for jumping on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll be talking along the way. All right, see you soon. Listen, all